Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, it's so great to be recording with you. I'm excited. We've got some really great chapters to go through. Yeah, this is Derek and me, first time recording, like actually together in the same room in like, what's it been, like two, three months? Yeah, probably three months, I think. Yeah, been a while. So like, this will be a nice little change of pace. I'm really looking forward to it. We don't have any real... Uh, news to discuss. You know, you guys have seen us posting about a couple of things on our social media. So we're just going to go straight into the Come Follow Me. But before that, we just want to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So this week we are going to be in Alma chapter 32 through 35. This is uh, the latter part of Alma. Well, this is basically the whole of Alma and Amulek's mission to the apostate Zoramites. We are going to have quite a bit of doctrine in these chapters. In fact, these are probably some of the most doctrinally uh, saturated chapters in the, like in all of the Book of Mormon. We learn a lot about faith. We learn a lot about, well, one of the best discourses in all of Scripture on faith is within these chapters, among several other things that we will be getting to. But uh, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, we're basically going to be talking about Alma and Amulek's words to the apostate Zoramites and the implications they have for how we approach the subjects of faith and even uh, some aspects of justice, spiritually and economically, and in a couple of other ways. So with that, Derek, if you, do you have anything to add before we go into 32? No, that's it. Cool. Then uh, let's go ahead and dive first into Alma 32. I know you have some thoughts about that, Derek. What we got? Well, I just wanted to name that I didn't grow up with this. So you probably grew up with Alma 32 and had it in seminary, had it in heard it all the time, and so you probably have, are bringing one thing to the, this chapter, and then I'm bringing something else. And so we'll just see. I'm really curious how, how this plays out differently. Okay. But what I wanted to say was, we've got these Zoramites, and the situation is that they're cast out of their synagogues because of their poverty, because of their clothing, because of their lack of access to these resources. They now have a lack of access to the synagogue and the institutional community. Now, being cast out of the synagogues for poverty is just one example of a class of excuses for excluding people from institutional access. Ethnicity, gender orientation, and gender identity can be other arbitrary ways of excluding people. Notice the poor among the Zoramites were excluded for the convenience of those who had the power. Mm. So that needs to be named, right? Mm. And this is especially relevant to the discrimination of LGBTQ individuals in the church. Now, these Zormites were under the impression that the institution had a monopoly on access to God. That was really what they were complaining about, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of what Alma and Amulek emphasize when they draw upon Zenos is that every individual child of God has direct access to God independent of those who in power idolize themselves as gatekeepers. What mm. do you think of all that? I really like that because um, like that was something that stood out to me this time around as well. Like We talk about this in the church every now and again, 
about uh, having this personal relationship with Christ or having this uh, intentional relationship with Christ, but um, not really feeling like we are able to partake of that because we are, we don't really fit in with the institution. Uh, somebody reached out to me fairly recently about not necessarily feeling worthy to some extent or another because they didn't fall in line in some way. They were outcast from their congregation in some form or fashion. Some people are outcast because of how they think. Some people are outcast because of how they love or how they look. And uh, because they don't necessarily fit into that mold, uh, they don't necessarily feel like they have the same access to God as everybody else who they attend church with, people who do check all the boxes or people who do uh, fall more in line with that conventional or traditional mold. And we're kind of, we're kind of in this chapter in particular, or in all of these chapters, really, we're kind of bucking that narrative that everybody really has an opportunity for a personal relationship with Christ. Everybody has an opportunity for uh, the same spiritual strength and the same access as the people who are rich or the people who are mm-hmm. traditional or the people who are conventional. Uh, that's what I, that's what I got out of just in these like first six or seven verses. You know, when you say it that way, it reminds me how, even though they had this physical disadvantage, it led to a spiritual advantage. Yes, sir. And Alma brings this point out. Let me just go into what Alma says here, because Alma explicitly decenters the institution and centers the power of the marginalized. He says, Behold, I say unto you, do ye suppose that ye cannot worship God, save it be in your synagogues only? This is Alma 32.10. And I just love how this, is, this reminds me so much of the statement of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, that blessed are the poor in spirit. So there's something about being marginalized that gives you a, an extra blessing, an extra perspective, an extra access, or even hunger for God. Mm-hmm. And, then, and in the end, it's the poor of the Zormites who end up converted, and so they win in the end. Ha ha. They <laughs> did. They did. <laughs> so Alma, and this is Alma 32, verse 13, actually celebrates their exclusion because it rearranges priorities and promotes humility. Okay. And this, we don't exactly have to agree with making their disadvantage into a positive, but it does serve as an example as to how religion is an exercise in meaning-making, and it serves to function to make meaning within a community. And Alma continues with a really interesting point. This is in Alma 32, verse 17. Yea, there are many who do say, If thou wilt show unto us a sign from heaven, then we shall know of a surety, then we shall believe. Mm. You know, there are I'm just going to apply this, you know, liken the scriptures unto ourselves and apply it this way. There are people today who want a heavenly sign that same-gender love is holy. They want a heavenly sign that black lives matter. They want a heavenly sign that all people of all genders should have the same opportunities. Or they want a heavenly sign that disabled individuals are whole. Now, some of you might not get that sign, but you have to have faith anyway. You need to take a step in the direction of something that could be a social risk, but it's not a risk of the truth. You need to have faith that all are alike unto God. Mm. So what do you think about people needing a sign? Because I think that the way this comes across is like, I'm not going to believe that gay people are okay until the prophet says it's okay. Or something yeah. like from God and whatever. But people all along 
who know LGBTQ people know that we're okay. Yeah, right? they know. So that's interesting that you say that because uh, I got to appear. I got to appear on a uh, on a radio show based in Utah. I think it's called Utah Weekly Forum. And I remember one of the questions that uh, the interviewer asked was, "What do you tell?" white people who don't believe that racism is a thing or who aren't able to say black lives matter, yada, yada. Like, what do you tell those white people in an effort to convince them? Something like that. And I was just like, well, these are people who, well, the other thing they'll say is that because they haven't experienced racism or because they haven't witnessed it, they may not believe that it exists. And at that point, you just got to be like, well, you're just going to have to take my word for it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, like, I'm the expert mm-hmm, in this situation. Mm-hmm. I've been in this body. I'm speaking for myself. I've been in this black body for 30 plus years. You know what I'm saying? I know what it's like to be in this yeah. body in the context of America. I know what it's like to be in this body as a member of the church. I know what that experience is. Like, doctors have like four years, eight years of experience in their chosen field. I have 30 some years in being black that I didn't ask for. Like, I yeah. know what this life is is and i it's it's almost the equivalent i th- i saw somebody articulate this masterfully on a social media the other day where somebody basically said for a for a uh average joe schmo to question or to tell a doctor how to do their job is basically the equivalent of a 5 year old trying to tell an adult how to do their job mm-hmm. or how to be mm-hmm. an adult mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying so i'm just like if we as Uh, If we as people, we're so accustomed to deferring to experts, we're so accustomed to deferring to doctors, so accustomed to leaving our children for eight hours with strangers we barely know who have like four years of education or certification at school. No disrespect there. (laughs) I noticed that. (laughs) But I'm just like, we can do all those things, but we can't believe black people. We can't exercise faith in black people when they're telling us things that are uncomfortable, but we can exercise faith Mm -hmm, in our teachers mm -hmm. who are way underpaid to take care of our children yeah. and take and to educate them. We can have faith in doctors that again, we barely know, but we know who have education. So we just defer to them. I would like to see people to apply the same amount of faith to their relationships with members of marginalized communities. I would love to see people exercise that same faith with black people when they say black lives matter, or when they say they experience racism in this country or in this church. I want to see them extend, extend that same faith and that same energy to members of the LGBTQ community when they say they experience homophobia in this nation or in this church. And I want to see those people elevated. I want to see their voices elevated and I want to see people listening to them. So what I think about that whole thing mm-hmm. is I mm-hmm. agree wholeheartedly and uh, it's in the book. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we ought to really apply that to people who have more expertise than us, people who see much clearer than we do, people who have experiences that we do not. You know, that reminds me that we as Latter-day Saints, we have the least amount of excuse for believing weird things. Because let's look <laughs> at No, let's look at the testimony of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. Dude. I did not see those plates. I did not see those angels. Like mm-hmm. we as Latter-day Saints believe in angels and plates and visitations that we have never seen based on the testimony of just a handful of people. If we can believe in these wildly unrealistic things, Mm -hmm. how much more should we be able to believe millions of black individuals when they tell us something that's completely realistic? Speak on it. Right. Speak on it. Like oppression is, is something that is everywhere. It's not, it's not like, some weird miraculous thing that no one can believe. It's, mm-hmm. it's all around. And I think, you know, 
A while back, I thought to myself, you know, I just got to really study and learn to understand black people. But then I realized I don't have to understand black people. I just have to believe them. Believe them, yes. I don't need to understand it all before I do the right thing. Now, obviously, I think there's I want to promote as much understanding as I can so that I can, you know, be part of the solution and not the problem. Right. But I think if I believe black people the way I want to be believed as a gay person, um, it really saves a lot of mistakes. Definitely. So we're talking about faith and, and believing in, especially the faith that all people are like unto God. That is the fundamental doctrine that is in jeopardy and is attacked by all these other heresies. And so how do we build our faith that all are like unto God? And I love this, is that the next logical step is developed by Alma in this whole discourse on planting a seed as an experiment. And let's try this. Let's apply it, like in the scriptures unto ourselves. Take LGBT-affirming perspectives. Plant them in your heart and look at the effect in your life and the lives of others. You will know by the fruits. Oops, that was not a pun. <laughs> you totally intended that. You totally I did intended not, that. I did not intend that. I just got that directly You will from know the, text. the fruits by their fruits. You will... <laughs> no, I... I'm putting that on a t-shirt somewhere. <laughs> no, but you will know the value of affirming theology by its fruits. Yes. By its fruits in the lives of the fruits. Okay. <laughs> there we go. But the fruits of affirming theology are genuine love, not this fake love. You know, a lot of people in the church, they say the word love and have no idea what it means. They'll get up in the pulpit. Anyone in the, let me just tell you the truth. This is the truth directly from the Lord. If you say you love LGBTs, but do not support us and our equality, you are betraying us with a kiss. Ooh. Let me say that again. Say it if, again. If you say you love, like I, I, people get up in the pulpit and say, oh, I love my, my gay family. You know, I love my gay friends. I love, that's not, we don't need to hear the word love. We need to see equality in the church, equal access, equal opportunity. Everything that straight people have in the church should be ours as well. Mm-hmm. And if you say you love us, but don't support that equality, you are betraying us with a kiss. Mm. Let's remember how we got here with the Zormites in the first place. They're yeah. up at the Ramiumptum saying a lot of stuff they don't really mean. Mm. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, and they're saying that they're the chosen ones, and yeah. they're the one that got to pick who the chosen are because mm-hmm. they exclude everyone else they don't like. Yep. And then that's not how the Lord defines who's chosen. You know, the Lord actually picks the underdogs, the mm-hmm. marginalized. He's always side with you the know, marginalized. This is the, uh, what, what, what Gustavo Gutierrez called the preferential option for the poor. Mm-hmm. He's a famous Latin American liberation yeah. theologian. You, you've made reference to him a couple of times. Yeah. And I remember you made reference to him uh, when we had Margaret Olson Hemming and Dr. Mm-hmm. Reverend Fatima Saleh on the show. Yeah. And, and I didn't know what y'all were talking about. <laughs> and I was like, this is clearly some theological nerd stuff I don't understand. So I like looked it up oh. later that day. Oh, okay. So well. I could like know what y'all was talking about. <laughs> well, uh, um, well, anyway. Yeah, so Gustavo is basically the founder of Latin American liberation theology in the 1960s, drawing upon the experiences of the poor in Latin America. But anyway, let's go back to what Alma says. So Alma says in Alma 33:23, And now, my brethren, I desire that ye shall plant this word in your hearts, and as it beginneth to swell 
even so, nourish it by your faith. And behold, it will become a tree, springing up in you unto everlasting life. And then may God grant unto you that your burdens may be light through the joy of his Son. Mm. And even all this can ye do, if ye will. Amen. So one of the fruits of affirming theology is that our burdens are lightened. When we tap into the faith that all are like unto God, it lightens all of our burdens. It mm-hmm. just drops right out from the text. What do you think about this, and how can we nourish this faith? Well, one way we can nourish the faith for sure is by pulling up the weeds of bad ideology and unbelief. I feel like that is a part of the cultivation analogy that often gets missed, is that we don't do the work of unlearning harmful ideas or harmful things that we have just otherwise may have believed that are detrimental to our brothers and sisters, well, all of our siblings on the margins. So like, I really like this idea of making an effort to affirm this or experiment upon the word of affirming theology, because as you said, this isn't Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. good for our marginalized siblings, it's good for all of us. In fact, oftentimes we're going to find that our world is expanded and our ability to appreciate life is expanded upon as we are able to embrace these other people, mm-hmm. embrace people who are not like us. In fact, I really like the, uh, the uh, not, not the imagery, but the words that are used. He's like, he says something along the lines of the word becometh delicious to me. And that's how I felt. Yeah. And that was the best, best way I could articulate how I felt when I was able to embrace the theology of marginalized people besides myself. Mm-hmm. I felt immense amount of peace and, and an immense greater ability to appreciate life and also to see the beauty in other people's struggles and in other people's lives as soon as I was able to embrace an affirming theology for my LGBTQ brothers and sisters and siblings. So like this is something that I can testify is not just good for our brothers and sisters on the margins. It's good for all of us. I feel immensely better and I feel immensely smarter and able to embrace other things uh, or at least be closer to God because I'm able to embrace a theology that loves everybody. Right. You know, the, the world is so much easier to navigate when you're right. <laughs> like you don't have to you don't have to try to bolster up fake false things. You don't have to like mistreat people. You don't have to conform to this awfulness because when you know that you're right, that's actually the way the world works. It's true about science, but it's also true about ethics and, and communal living. And it reminds me a lot of um, Lehi's I Have a Dream moment where he had the dream of the, uh, the, the tree. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, the fir- his first reaction was, I've got to get everyone else on board. <laughs> and here my, my hand just ran into yeah. this fig tree that's in my room. <laughs> and yeah, like... This is so great. I want everyone, because there's a communal aspect to salvation. And no, who is it that said no one is free until all of us are free? Oh, gosh. That sounds like something MLK would say, but... I can't remember. Some famous person said that. Right. But it's, I can actually tell you who, who said this in the New Testament was Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, look, if one member suffers, everyone suffers. And if one member rejoices, we're, you know, we're all in one body. You know, this is... It's kind of like I've used this analogy before. If I bump my toe on the corner of my bed, which I've done before, I don't look down at my toe and said, whoops, sorry for you, poor toe. 
like I have no connection to you. My whole body is mad, right? Mm-hmm. My my face grimaces, I bend over, like my whole body feels it when my toe feels it. And mm-hmm. this is exactly what we are in the body of Christ, which is the church. There are people in the church, especially women, people of color, and LGBTQ people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and not suffering because there's anything wrong with us, but there's something wrong with the way our church is treating us. And the toe is like 1% of your body. Yeah. Women are like <laughs> half the church. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. And, you know, we're it, the fact that we have basically an all-male leadership in the church means that we're running on half our talent. Imagine mm-hmm. how amazing the restoration could be if we were running on all of our talent. Mm-hmm. Let me just get back to this, to this text. What was I saying? Oh, yes. Now we've got the prophet Zenus quoted here, and this is gonna this joke is gonna be as bad as it's gonna be worse than the fruit joke. We're in thirty three now. Yeah, Alma thirty three verse seven, and here's part of Zenus's. Uh, oh gosh, I see where yeah, this is going. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Zenus says, and when I did turn unto my closet, O Lord, and prayed unto Thee, Thou didst hear me. So there you go. What's coming? Prayer from the closet. Prayer from the margins. It works. It says, mm. thou didst hear me. And it sounds like a joking coincidence, but there's an actual point about the closet here. Okay. The whole reason is that Zenus is quoted to the Zormites is to testify to the outcast among the Zormites that they can take comfort in a lack of dependence on institutions, that they can access God on their own terms. That's the whole point of, of this entire discourse is saying, look, I know you're in this spot, you're marginalized, but you're actually at the center of God's heart here, and you Mm. can access God. And we also get this in Amulek's discourse in Alma 34, verses 17 through 27. Also, Amulek mentions the closets also. He does. So we can, the whole point is, we can reach God in whatsoever place ye may be in. Um, This is Alma 34, verse 38. What do you think about, about the effect that this had on the Zoramites? First of all, I like how you pointed out that uh, he was able to access God. Zenus was able to access God in the closet. This is, I mean, there's few places more isolated than a closet. And even that far away, that far removed from an institution, people are still able to access God. Mm -hmm. I like that first off. Repeat the question again, because I already forgot it. The question was, what do you think? What effect do you think this had on the Zoramites? Well, I hope, and I'm seeing, like, just as a result of what I see in Alma 35, that perhaps they were relieved. They were able to claim a space for themselves now that they understand they don't need to be at church. They don't need to be at the synagogue to worship. Like, as soon as I, as soon as I learned that I don't need the approval of people around me in order to worship— like that was extremely liberating. As soon as I realized I didn't have to think like everybody else or I didn't have to fit whatever conventional mold had been cut for uh, members of the church, as soon as I realized I didn't have to fit that, you know, that was liberating. So I believe, based on the results of Alma and Amulek's preaching, that they probably found a lot of liberation in that as Mm, well, because mm -hmm. they realized that, hey, we're poor, and we have coarse apparel, and they may not think we're good enough to be at church and worship with them, but we are still good enough to worship. We don't have to be with them. We can be out here. In fact, we're better out here because they aren't even following the gospel like they're supposed to, and we're out here in a state Mm. of humility, in a state of being willing to uh, listen to Christ, being willing to listen to his servants like Alma and Amulek, and we can still worship without feeling like we are better than other people. In fact, that liberatory experience is very similar to my own, probably a lot of other people's. They realize that 
they may not have what the people who worship at church or the people who have conventional beliefs or practices mm-hmm. have, mm-hmm. but they have something that's even better because their circumstances have put them in a position to appreciate the gospel in a way that those who abide conventions are not able to. Yeah, they're, they're driven to have hope in nothing other than God because mm-hmm. everything else they can't depend on. Yeah. Which leads to this really interesting irony that I've noticed because I don't I don't fit in very well and it's not just the gay piece that's just a small <laughs> that's a small piece of me. I think it's more like my convert background, my academic approach to scriptures mm-hmm. like that really separates me culturally from a lot of my context. Mm-hmm. Um you know cuz you know there are a lot of gay Latter-day Saints. There are very few bi- biblical scholar saints and i think that even that is even more of a separation you're a biblical scholar and you're a queer latter-day saint and you're a convert and yeah. you like vegetables i do like vegetables you like vegetables you're just yeah. all kinds of different derek yeah but but here's one of the ironies that i've noticed and i don't think anyone has ever named this before besides me is that it's actually easier and better to fit in maybe 50 percent of the way than to fit in 95% of the way, because there's a lot of people suffering in our church, a lot of these near-picture-perfect families. You know, especially here, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but in the U.S., there's this norm of what your family should look like, what your life should look like. You have, like, the father who is the breadwinner, the stay-at-home mom, the 7.5 kids, <laughs> the, you know, this, then you have your callings, you have all, like, all of this other stuff, none of which I've done, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, if you fit in 95% of the way, you are going to grind yourself to exhaustion trying to make up that other 5%. Yeah. But if you're like me and you only fit in like 30%, you're like, whatever. I'm never going to be that. So I'm not even going to try. There's no pressure on me right. to be someone that I'm not. Mm-hmm. Like, like literally. Yeah. Like I have never in my nearly five years in this church ever felt pressure to, to not be myself. But a lot of these families, these couples, a lot of them aren't happy. Yeah. And a lot of them feel pressure from their parents and their community to live a certain way and to be something they're not. And I'm actually blessed that I don't fit in mm-hmm. because no one fits in, and at least I know it. When you really look at it, if I may, Derek, uh, one of the tender mercies that, that was extended to me after my divorce was realizing that like I lived in the family ward at the time mm-hmm. and uh, you know, me and my ex-wife at the time, at the time, like were probably the youngest couple that were in that particular ward. So like, I remember being like the youngest single dude in this family ward, just feeling so out of place. But I also remember looking around me and seeing what was happening and realizing that like half the ward didn't fit into the conventional mold. Like half of them, you know, either weren't, mm-hmm. ha- weren't mm-hmm. happy in some way had a wayward child, had a non-traditional family of some kind, or like just otherwise didn't fit uh, the mold in some way. And that I felt like that gave me a lot of permission and a lot of ability to find my own way so long as I was still in that family ward because I like there was no more pressure on me. And I'd felt it before. Like I didn't feel it strongly, but I did feel the pressure like when I was married to fall in in some particular way. But as soon as I had to find other comforts, I realized that that was a pressure I never needed to feel because no one's normal, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Very few of us actually check all those boxes and yeah. fit those conventions, like at least in a way that we're supposed to. So uh, I just wanted to lift that point yeah. up that you brought up because that brought me a lot of, 
comfort mm-hmm. uh, at a very trying time in my life. And you know that I already mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, but the Beatitudes are exactly that. Like you're you're blessed, you're fortunate, you're lucky if you're on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Don't take that as a, as a, in a gay way. That, that I mean, I didn't, but <laughs> but it's out there now. But you're you're fortunate if you are poor in spirit, if you you hunger and thirst for for justice. Now, the word dikaiosune can either mean justice or righteousness. A lot of people spiritualize it, but it really means being in right relationship, right? Blessed right. are those who are, are eager for that type of justice, right? And, you know, blessed are those who mourn. Like, you, you've got all the people on the margins that Jesus says, you know what, you're the lucky ones. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just so glad that I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm so lucky to be talking with you every week. That, that is well. Yes, something. we're the weirdos out here. We got each other. So let's go on to Alma 34. You had some things I that do. I'm really curious about for Alma 34. Yeah, I do have some things with Alma 34. I really loved Amulek's sermon for a few reasons. He does a lot of the same things that he does uh, when we first hear him preach. And like, I'm a, gosh, I don't remember the chapters. But like when we first hear him preach, when we first hear him disrupt uh, the persecution that Alma is about to receive, he does a lot of those same things in that he... Uh, uses his position to lift up the words of his companion. He talks about Am or talks about Alma as his brother, and then he spends mm-hmm. the majority of his sermon reaffirming the words that Alma just spoke, which is something I really appreciate. But let me tell you what he does at the beginning of this that I just really identified with and could really appreciate. Uh, at the beginning of Alma thirty-four, let me just get these verses here. This is Alma thirty-four, starting in verse two. Amulek says, I think that it is impossible that ye should be ignorant of the things which have been spoken concerning the coming of Christ who is taught by us to be the Son of God. Yea, I know that these things were taught unto you bountifully before your descension from among us. Let's just stop right there real quick. Amulek is basically saying, I know all of this and more was taught to you often prior to your descension. And then what the rest of his sermon is basically how did you mess it up this badly, guys? How did you get it so wrong? Y'all were taught about Christ. Y'all have the words of Zenus and Zenic who testify of Christ. And y'all have the audacity to tell God in prayer from your Ramiumptums that you know there will be no Christ. Y'all are out here with Zenus and Zenic's words lamenting that y'all can't worship outside of your synagogues when they clearly said that's not how worship works. This is Amulek's introduction. This is Amulek's pre-sermon to his actual sermon, and he's already gone in. It's just very interesting how the Zoramites have been taught the truth and had the scriptures, and they still found themselves far off course, not just to the point of believing that God has told them that there would be no Christ to come, but that that same God they worship might be okay with them casting out the poor of their synagogues. And now those poor Zoramites feel like their ability to worship has been taken from them. Like, what happened? Like, you have to ask, what happened and how did they get here? He brought up a good point. Y'all have been taught this stuff. How did y'all get here? Mm-hmm. Like, how did y'all get here? And then I started to think about that question for the church. I started thinking about that for us. Like, last week we talked about how we're not as inclined to see ourselves in the antagonists in the scriptures. We don't really see ourselves or we're not conditioned to see ourselves in the Zoramites or in the Korahors or anybody like that. But, you know, it's a question I want to ask us as members of the church. 
like you and I, I mean, especially you, but you and I, mm-hmm. we know the scriptures. We know what's in there. They affirm the humanity of people like us. I know the gospel of Jesus Christ condemns white supremacy and police brutality. How did we become this? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do we yeah. become this? I- I'm looking at this particular moment in history right now, how the church is responding to it and the initiatives that uh, my black siblings are engaging in presently for the benefit of the black saints, for the recognition of black humanity. And I can't help but wonder, why is any of this necessary in the Church of Christ? Why mm. is it necessary? Why are black folks in the church having to fight for their humanity to be recognized at a church school? Why did so many members share that Candace Owens video last month? Why do so many members struggle to say black lives matter? Why are they so offensive when they or defensive when they hear that phrase? How do we serve... Uh, um, how do we serve missions in foreign countries and manage to have such negative views of non-white people and still end up with temple recommends? How mm. have we gotten to a point where there are not regular and explicit condemnations of police brutality and white supremacy from the highest levels of our church? How have we uh, been recipients of the fullness of the gospel and still managed to be on the wrong side of history so often or so hesitant to be on the right side of history? Like, those were just the questions that were flooding my mind as I read through the opening uh, verses of Alma. Amulek raised up some really good points. He raised up some proper questions. We have been Mm. taught this stuff. This is in our sacred text. This is our doctrine. Right. Yet this is where we are. And I couldn't help but uh, wonder to myself, why are we here and how did we get here? And it's it, like it's so ironic because we are the Church of Jesus Christ. Correct. And not only that, but when we look at our history, look at how we were the victims of violence and mobs yep. and and what would be the equivalent of police yep. brutality in Carthage or in Nauvoo or in in Missouri. Like, mm-hmm. how dare we lift up those things and and say, well, we're never going to forget that, and then ask ask black people to just now randomly, magically pretend that never happened. To be okay with their school being named after a guy who was our most notorious and highest profile racist, to have buildings on that same campus named after slave owners and people who have set up an impossible block to our tie to our black pioneer heritage. Like, how do we do this? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that was just another no, thing that came into my but mind. No, but that makes a lot of sense. And I think here's where we have an advantage as biblical scholars. Because right now in America, we are wrestling with tearing down Columbus and Washington and Jefferson and all mm-hmm. these statues. Mm-hmm. Like, what do we do? Um, and, you know, tearing down the Confederates is a really easy, easy choice. Uh, but what do we do with some of these who are, whose names are just part of our institutions and, and our founding fathers? And here's, here's what we do as biblical scholars is we don't have the luxury of not wrestling. Mm-hmm. Every hero in the Bible, with the exception of Christ, messed up majorly. Yeah. Majorly. As bad as Brigham, as bad as, as you know, Columbus, as bad as Washington— like all of them had some major, major disqualifying aspects, like Moses, David, Peter, Paul, all of them. Mm-hmm. And all of them, all of those that I just mentioned, I still consider heroes mm. because I can navigate that complexity. Mm-hmm. And we have, to take to, we have to learn to take the good and leave the bad. And the safest and most way, responsible way of navigating that is 
to disavow their flaws and at the same time see how these figures point to Christ and then let Christ be our only infallible hero. That's where the safety is. The safety in all of these religious leaders, including Brigham, including Abraham Smoot, isn't what they did right. for us. It's they pointed us to Christ and we're alongside them also pointing to Christ. And by pointing, pivoting towards Christ, when we look at our heroes in the past, we can never go wrong um, because then we don't have to approve all of the char- characteristics of our faith heroes. And that's really the brilliance of this church not being named after Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. It's named after Jesus Christ. And people looked at President Nelson like he was kind of weird for, for hitting so hard on that this is the church of Jesus Christ. But he's right. Like we have a prophet from the Lord who says this is a priority. Mm. And that leads directly into my point that we should have no ultimate hero but Christ. We can have people as part of our history and, uh, and wrestle with it that way. Anything else on Alma 34? Because I've got something I wanted to yeah. say. Um, that actually segues wonderfully into a point I wanted to make about something that occurs uh, later in uh, later in the book of Alma 34, or in chapter 34. This is 40 and 41. It reads, And now, my beloved brethren, I would exhort you to have patience, and that ye bear with all manner of afflictions, that ye do not revile against those who cast you out because of your exceeding poverty, lest ye become sinners like unto them but that ye have patience and bear with those afflictions with a firm hope that ye shall one day rest from all your afflictions. Now, there's a lot of wisdom in this that is hard for a person like me to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, you know, as a member of the church, as an activist, as you know, somebody who just doesn't tolerate disrespect very well, this is a hard thing for me to hear. I feel like I do a fairly good job of abiding this particular principle, but it doesn't make it any less difficult to be patient. I, I know the good. Like, on this show, Derek, I've been pretty critical of the church pretty often, primarily, though, because I love it so much. I, I know the mm-hmm. good that uh, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ can do for other people, especially on the margins, and I can't stand watching the church or its members shoot themselves in the foot on a regular basis by not embracing anti-racism or by perhaps not having, or perhaps by being homophobic or misogynistic or whatever else. Like I had someone reach out to me just this past week about her uh, family, uh, perhaps not having the spiritual stamina to return to church after this pandemic. She heard me talk about uh, activism and about spiritual stamina on human stories. This interview I did like a month ago, I think. But I had mentioned something about having spiritual stamina or being in a position to have spiritual stamina because of my position of privilege while espousing a marginalized identity. And uh, she discussed how difficult it was for someone like her and her family to keep going to church because of how unaffirming it was for people like her family, especially her black children. Her boys look just like me, you know? And I'm pissed that the church is not more hospitable to young people who have the potential to be among the best leaders in this church one day. But like to read verses like this, like 40 and 41, that exhort me to patience when I feel like I have every right to be impatient is hard. I I just do not like 
having that difficulty posed to people who are like me. But at the same time, I see the wisdom in not wanting to revile the church because of the way things are right now. Because I don't want to be, I don't want to be like the church in that regard. I don't want to no. be um, dismissive of people because of identities, identities they espouse. And, you know, you talked about the wisdom of our prophet. I want to be able to give him grace to make mistakes. I want to be able to give the people who came before us the grace to make mistakes so that I can be able to have patience as we work to make mm-hmm. things better. We know what the destiny of the church is, Derek. We know that ultimately the destiny of the church is to have a place for all people like us, for all people on the margins. And because we know that, we have the responsibility to take patience as we navigate toward that goal. It is still going to be hard for people like us. And I want to say, as a person who is black, but a person who is also single, who has no kids, who is educated, who is cisgendered and straight, I probably have a lot more stamina than somebody like this woman who reached out to me, who is a woman married with at least three kids that I was able to see. And it's probably a lot harder for Mm -hmm. her to be in that environment knowing that she has children that are not going to be affirmed by the people that are supposed to be their brother's keeper. I have to be able to name that as well. I think Christ is a good model of that. And the thing is, if we respond to hate with more hate, then hate wins. Correct. Right? Um, And, you know, I want to get into, speaking of taking care of one another, something in Alma 34, verse 28. And this is where, where it says, after you have done all these things, if you turn... If you turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and afflicted and impart of your substance, if you have to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if you do not do any of these things, behold, your prayer is in vain. This is right after a discussion of prayer. Mm -hmm. And he says, look, if you ask God for stuff, but then don't care for people when they ask you for stuff, it avails you nothing. You don't get any credit. You are as hypocrites who do deny the faith. And I think, obviously, people, there's a lot of good people in the church, a lot of good conservative people in the church, and they think, oh, this is about a personal handout. Like, if someone is hungry, I feed them. But let's, let's see what happens with this, okay? Some people will say that this applies only to that individual handout and not the moral pursuit of systemic and structural change. But just wait, there's more. We'll get to it. So as Amulek here urged the poor among the Zoramites, so also the believers among the Zoramites themselves later faced a real challenge when they were cast out of the land by the more popular part of the Zoramites, the ones that were unbelievers. So what happened is the believing Zoramites were singled out, which is an act of discrimination, Mm -hmm. and then kicked out of their land. Major injustice. Major injustice. Um... This is, uh, this is at the, towards the beginning of Alma 35. Now, the narrator here makes sure the Zoramites are named for special concern and special consideration, essentially saying Zoramite lives matter. Okay. This is in direct contrast to the heresy we just heard Korahor teaching, that everyone should fend for themselves and people can pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, and however people thrive or fail, we should treat them the same without any special intervention because all lives matter, according to Korhor. Now let's look at this. I said that the narrator specifically names Zormites. Zormite lives matter. Let's look at Alma 35, verse 9. Therefore they, the people of Ammon, and these were the, uh, 
the anti-Nephi-Lehi's that now are called the people of Ammon. Therefore they did not cast them out, but they did receive all the poor of the Zoramites that came over unto them. And they did nourish them, and did clothe them, and did give unto them lands for their inheritance. And they did administer unto them according to their wants. Now, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Because people will, will fixate on the nourishing and feed, like, oh, I do that. I help, I help you know, these one-off situations. But let's look at this. One of the most important things that is mentioned is land for their inheritance. Mm-hmm. Notice that the people of Ammon's generosity extended beyond welfare to actual reparations, the gift of land as inheritance. Now, let me back up and talk about why this is so relevant to the conversation in the United States today. We live in a situation of extreme economic injustice in our country, and it didn't come out of nowhere. A large part of this injustice is based on the perpetuation of inherited privilege, which, of course, disproportionately affects people of color. And it's not that no people of color have money. Many do. But I think an overlooked aspect here is that many white families pass down from generation to generation the means to generate wealth. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, there, there's a number of black people with, with money, you know, entertainers, actors, uh, athletes. But none of those things exactly lead into the intergenerational ability to generate wealth in succeeding mm-hmm. generations. They can maybe leave some money, but that's not how you get ahead in this country permanently. Okay? And these means of generating wealth that you can pass on are things like land, education, business and social connections, networking, a recognizable name, you know, startup money. Uh, look at what. Well, I don't even want to mention the tangerine terror, but <laughs> but the ownership of businesses, that is something that can be passed to your gen- future generations. And the reason why reparations are necessary today is because the disparities created in the past continue today. Some families can pass down not just wealth, but the means to generate wealth, and other families cannot. Hmm. And because of this discrimination of the past, you know, a lot of people say, well, I like black people now. I don't have anything against black people. Why should I pay for, you know, that's not the point, right? right. When you understand this and when you understand what, what the people of Ammon did for the Zoramites, we really understand what we need to do. You know, even if no one is guilty of discrimination now, and that's not true, of course, but even if that <laughs> were the case, there is a disparity from the past that still needs to be corrected. And that's exactly what the people of Ammon did. And the, like I said, these are the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They have a proven character. They proved it with their radical covenant to nonviolence. And then now they also proved it by bestowing on the poor Zoramite refugees not just food and clothing for today, but also the inherited means of generating wealth. And I'm not just making that up. It's right there in the text. It says they did nourish them and did clothe them and did give unto them lands. What does it say? Lands for their inheritance. inheritance. That is beautiful. That is Mm Christ-like. That is social justice. Like, I'm not even reading this into the text. It's literally right there. Because if they had welcomed them in but given them no means— and they didn't, were they even obligated to give them land? Probably not, according to whatever rules and laws they had at the time. Well, this is what I'm looking at right here. I'm looking at the verses preceding this. Yeah. And, you know, you don't mm-hmm. see a lot about the political or, uh, 
whatever means or modes you go about to like just give somebody land like there's one very short verse without a prolonged narrative about deciding if these people deserve help or questioning the circumstances under which they arrived in their land there's no consideration of the ethnic tension that mm-hmm. might exist between the descendants of Laman and the descendants of uh, Zoram, who we know sided with Nephi in them. But like, there's merely an acknowledgement that these poor people have been kicked out of their homeland with nowhere to go, and they need a place to go. So the people of Ammon just give them one. Verse 7, Alma and his brethren did minister unto them. That's right. all we have of mm-hmm. this whole exchange. Refugees come, we bring them in, and we administer to them. That's it. And there's no even there's not even a hint of a discussion of who's at fault, mm-hmm. right? It's people need homes, people right. need lands, people need the ability to continue. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter for their for this purpose. It doesn't matter wh- whose fault it was. It matters is there's people that are in need, and the Christ-like thing to do is a yeah. structural solution to meet that need in an ongoing manner. Handle it. And, um, and thus we see, I love Mormon's catchphrase, <laughs> and thus we see that structural and systemic solutions are holy and sacred, even when the people who enact the solution, the people of Ammon, are not the same people as those who earlier caused the problem, the unbelievers among the Zoramites. And I love how the Book of Mormon is a radical social justice text when you read it from the perspective of the marginalized. Mm-hmm. Then uh, before we launch into our housekeeping items real quick, we just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That is DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Derek, where can people find us? So you can find us on BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And what are those handles? Those are... What are they? Like, you just search for us. <laughs> you can just search for us. And then I think it's BTBLDS for that is Twitter. Correct. And um, it's the same for Instagram. Yeah. And then Facebook is. Facebook you, doesn't you have search, one. It's just the slash beyond. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how that works. Also, in an effort to sustain the work of the show and to improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone. We launched a Glow page uh, several weeks back where if you're willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a Mm -hmm. monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. Those who contribute anything get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including uh, access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback and ideas Mm -hmm. for the show, Mm -hmm. access our notes, and much more. So if you, got, if you don't have any coins to throw at us, you can just share our Glow page on your socials, and then you can still join our collaborator community. So uh, yeah, yeah, in case you haven't heard, we've already covered our uh, startup costs and our current monthly expenses. So now we're on to bigger and better things, trying to figure mm-hmm. out 
what we are going to do with uh, bigger social media platforms, funding those. Perhaps we'll have some merch on the way. Yep. I don't know. Maybe we can get our cute faces onto YouTube. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> like, not my face as it is right now, man. Like, this is... I still, I'm rocking a hard quarantine beard. I cannot wait until a barber is allowed to touch my face. That is going to be a happy day. I'm over here looking like Moses. <laughs> well, you know, for those of you that do have privilege and means, when you contribute to us, you can count that partly as reparations. <laughs> so uh, if you want to act on what we talked about today, you can definitely chip in uh, whatever you can. Good part to move that. Also, y'all new collaborators, there, there were like three or four of y'all new ones this week. All y'all really value your anonymity, and I can respect that. So, you know, I'm still going to be like sending these emails out to y'all to like individually thank you. But I would really like to shout y'all out on the show. So, you know, if, if y'all don't mind that, let me get your names so we can give mm. y'all some credit. We got another AOL address this week, man. Oh, wow. Where maybe, are y'all coming from? Maybe it's President Nelson because he's that, <laughs> that generation. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Like, when was AOL popping? Like, I really can't remember other than the late 90s or mid-90s when AOL was popping. Like, who's still using it now and why? Yeah, remember CompuServe? I remember CompuServe. And and Prodigy. Prodigy! That was my first one. Prodigy was my first one. But yeah, chat rooms had my own screen name and everything. It was great. But uh, yeah, if you collaborators want to be named on the show, like, let us get your name so we can properly shout you out on the show. That would be great. Um... We finally like to thank our friends, Tamara Kemsley, for editing the show, David Doyle for editing our transcripts. Also want to thank Eden Wynn, who's taken on the responsibility or the task or however you want to name it of helping us out with our social media. So, you know, you don't got to be stealing memes and being less active on the more popular ones. So thank you all for what you are contributing to the show as you are able and as we are unable. Anything else, Derek, that I forgot to mention? Nope, that's it. All right. Well, thank you all for listening till we meet again next week.